Earlier this week, uh, I watched a YouTube video that uh, a young man had put together in which he had built and designed a costume for himself. Really, it was a disguise that made him look exactly like a car seat. Yes, you heard me correctly, a car seat. And he had set it up so that he would sit in the driver's seat of his car, but because of this costume, it looked as if no one were there. It was really quite clever. Then what did he do? He set up a camera in the car, and he started going through the drive-through at different fast food restaurants. And it was very, very entertaining to see the responses and reactions of the people working at these restaurants in the drive-through as this car pulled up with no driver. And it really did look as though there were no driver present. There were, the, the responses were hilarious, but all of them were shocked. There was one, one young man who opened the window and looked, and he closed the window and looked away, and then he opened the window again, and then he closed the window and looked away. He did it four times, trying to figure out if he was dreaming or if something was wrong with his vision. But why are all these people shocked? Why is it that every single employee that sees this is shocked? It's because everyone knows that cars need drivers. If you're a Formula One Grand Prix race fan, no one ever says, wow, that Mercedes car, it drove a great race. No, they say, wow, Lewis Hamilton sure had a great race. Or if you're a little older, you know, Nelson Piquet, or even older, Emerson Fittipaldi, or a little bit younger, Ayrton Senna. Acts 2, 42 through 47, describes what the baby church was like in its very first months of existence. It's a well-known passage. You've probably read it. And when you've heard it, you have probably thought, if the early church did that, if the early believers acted in those ways, then we should do that too. And while there may be some truth in that statement, we're missing the foundation. We're missing the driver. What drove that early community? Who is driving the church? Because it's the driver that brings about the community that we read of. The church is made up, if you haven't figured this out yet, it's made up of human beings. Sometimes that's unfortunate. And therefore, because the church is made up of us, of people, it's incapable of being perfect on its own. It's even incapable of forming a community of joy, like we'll read about here in Acts 2, on their own. So on that day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people became believers in Jesus. The text says that they were baptized and received the Holy Spirit. So as we examine this short description of life in the new church today, the question we need to ask is, to what did the Holy Spirit inspire the first believers? I know it might seem like a question of semantics, but it's important. The Holy Spirit is the driver of the church. The church does not drive itself. What we see in the early church is due to the presence, activity, and inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. So let's not just ask, where are we going? But let's ask, where is the Holy Spirit driving us? Where is the Holy Spirit taking us? Where is the Holy Spirit leading us? I'll be reading this short description of the early church again from Acts 2. 
beginning with verse 42 through the end of the chapter. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. To what did the Holy Spirit inspire those early believers? The first thing is to the word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired the early church to be devoted to the word of God. Now I'll explain how I get there. When Acts refers to the apostles, it's speaking of the original 11 disciples plus Matthias who was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. Apostles were the men Jesus chose to walk and live most closely with him during his life on earth. And they were all personal witnesses of his life and his resurrection. The text says that the Holy Spirit inspired the new community of believers to devote themselves to the teaching of these apostles. Well, what was their teaching? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how did they teach it? From the Old Testament scriptures and their personal witness of Christ's life and resurrection. Peter's sermon, which we've spent the last three weeks examining, provides a template for a general understanding of the fashion of their teaching. Paul is later added to the number of the apostles by God's direct divine word and intervention. And his teachings, as we see not only through Acts, but then also in his writings, he draws on Old Testament scripture and then his witness of Christ's life. So Old Testament scripture combined with witness of the resurrection. Today, the church understands that the repository of apostolic teaching is the New Testament. That has been preserved for us. So in the books and epistles of the New Testament, we have preserved what the apostles were teaching in those early days of the church. So we can say, generally, that the Holy Spirit, when he inspired the church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, he was inspiring them to be devoted to the Word of God. The Word itself, the teaching of the Word, preaching of the Word, and practice of the Word. The second value to which the Holy Spirit inspired the early church was the value of the community of believers. The term here that Luke uses is fellowship. Now, I, I know that when we use this term in English, what we usually picture is just being together, hanging out, maybe praying, maybe sharing together, and probably some food. But in Greek, the word for fellowship, many of you probably know it, it's koinonia, it has a strong sense of participation. That's why Paul writes about us having fellowship with Christ's sufferings. It's a participation in. So a fellowship with Christ means to participate in Christ. 
So when the text says that they were devoted to the fellowship, it means they were committed to participating in each other's lives. To participating in and with the community of believers. Now, just note in this very short passage that there are three things, three actions that relate specifically to the participation in the lives of one another among that early church. First of all, there's, there's generosity. It's clearly stated here and described, and it, it, it sounds beautiful. Some people have said, you know, this is, this is uh, the first um, indication of communism in the world. Um, but that's not it, because it's not a government that's mandating that everybody give up their possessions. The Holy Spirit within people is causing them to see the needs in others in their community, and voluntarily they give sacrificially to meet those needs. I must take a moment here to comment on how often I have been blessed and even at times brought to tears by the generosity of the community at Calvary. Sometimes I have privileged information, if you want to put it that way, and I I happen to hear of how a certain person is helping someone else or how people give sacrificially generally to those who are in need in our congregation. And it's incredibly blessed to hear those things. I am incredibly blessed to know those. And many people have been blessed both by the giving and by the receiving. I think this is actually one way that many within our body and that our body as a whole does reflect some of this value in the early church of giving sacrificially so that all needs are met or so that many needs are met. So generosity is one way we see this participation in the lives of one another. A second way is is meeting together. They got together and it's Maybe a little ironic that we're talking about this in the midst of a pandemic when we're supposed to be keeping our distance. But just a little plug for the fact that we're going to retake our in-person services on the 20th of September, two weeks from today. More about that later. But they met together every day. Every day in the temple courts. The Holy Spirit is inspiring this nearness among believers. Thirdly, How about this? They shared meals together. That's fascinating, isn't it? What is it about eating that builds relationships? I don't know. But think about how often, if you're either getting to know someone or want to get to know someone, or maybe you're already fast friends, and you say, let's get together for a meal, or at the very least, coffee, right? For some reason, sharing a meal builds relationship. It's interesting that Jesus did this with the church. He did it with his disciples. He instituted it for us in communion. That that shared meal with him builds that relationship. I just want us to note those three things briefly because they show that even in these this short five verses, how much and how often and how important was to the early believers, their interaction, their fellowship, their participation in each other's lives. Let's move on to the third point. So, so far we've seen the Holy Spirit inspiring the early believers to be devoted to the Word of God and then to the fellowship to the community of believers. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit inspires them to worship. When Luke writes, the breaking of bread. So they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. He's referring to communion. 
the practice that Jesus had ordained for them just weeks earlier. Broadly speaking, this practice points to the worship of God in community. They celebrated communion together. Later in that text, it says they praised God. Praise God together. They met together in the temple courts, and that meeting together is not just meeting to hang out. And it's important that it's in the temple because the implication is cultic worship. They are worshiping God there in the temple. They prayed together. These are all specifically acts of worship along with the teaching of the apostles. So note, again, the emphasis on worship that the Holy Spirit inspired in the early church. And I want to mention once again, uh, I just want to bring it up again, that they gathered daily in the temple courts. And apparently that was a source of joy for them, not a burden. An hour and a half on Sunday morning doesn't sound too, so long now, does it? Uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the early church to worship God as their priority. Let's move on. Fourthly, prayer. The Holy Spirit inspired the early church, the early believers, to be devoted to prayer. And though prayer is an aspect of worship, it's important enough that Luke mentions it on its own. The Holy Spirit drove the early believers to devote themselves to prayer. Why? Prayer is likewise an aspect of relationship. It is communication. It's part of communication between God and his people. Of course this would be something the Holy Spirit would want to develop in the children of God. For those of you who have teenagers, particularly teenage sons, now this is not true for all of them. I've been very grateful that God generally has given me two very communicative teenage sons, but I know that that's not true for all of them. What's it like trying to get your adolescent son to talk to you, to have a meaningful conversation, to share their feelings. How was your day? Good. What'd you do? Nothing. What did you learn? Not much. Or those are actually really good answers. A more common answer is, I don't know. What did you do? I don't know. What did you learn? I don't know. How was your day? I don't know. Of course, of course God would inspire his own children to communicate with him. Because that is one aspect of building this relationship of the Heavenly Father to His children. And yet, and I, I can put myself in this category, how often we view prayer as a burden. It's, it's much easier to attract people to a, a time where we're going to be singing in worship than it is to attract people to a time of concerted prayer. And I think part of that is, is because we've been deceived, and part of it is because we simply do not yet really believe in the power of God in and through prayer. But the point is here, this is something the Holy Spirit is inspiring in the people of God. Now we're going to arrive at the final, the fifth inspiration, if you will, it's actually a byproduct. It's a result of that to which the believers are devoted. They're devoted to the Word of God, to the community of believers, to worship and to prayer. And what happens? What's the result? Multiplication. Their numbers grow exponentially. Now here... More than in any of the other four, we see clearly 
that it is the work of the Lord. They devoted themselves to these things, and then the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Conversion is the Lord's work. But as we've seen over and over just in these first two chapters of Acts, God uses the witness of his people as a step in that process. So when we say that the Holy Spirit inspires multiplication of believers, we're also implying that he inspires the witness of those who are already children of God to those who are not yet his children. It's interesting in this passage that it says that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Why? Those who were outside the body of believers are watching this new community. And what are they seeing in that new community? They are seeing a commitment among the members of that community to each other. They are seeing a commitment to the worship of God, which of course was so important to the Jewish tradition. They were seeing worship. They were seeing a sacrificial care for each other. They were astonished. They were watching people sell possessions and instead of hoarding that money, giving it away freely. They saw people praising God. The implication is there was a lot of joy in this community and those outside the community are watching it and they're saying, okay, uh, we want in. We want to be part of a community like this because out here, that's not what I'm living. The Lord inspired them. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's incredible multiplication. And that's the Lord's work. But again, the Holy Spirit is inspiring those people to witness. He's inspiring them to witness in what they say and in how they live. Now, before I go to the conclusion of this and make the application to us today, uh, I'm going to take a, a brief time out and to, to address what Luke writes here about the signs and wonders. The signs and wonders that the apostles are performing. I believe that God still does miracles and he still acts in amazing ways. But at the same time, it seems to be so very rare in our current context, while in the early church, from this description, it sounds like it was probably daily. So why might this be? Why in the early church were signs and wonders prevalent and common, while today, at least, I should, I should say this as a caveat, at least in our context, they're not? Are we doing something wrong? Is God not pleased with his church today? Now, I can't say for certain that I know the mind of God on this, but I do think that there is some good evidence for us to consider. I was not here when Walmart opened their very first store in Sao Paulo, but my dad was here. Uh, Pastor Bill was here, and he told me about it. First of all, Walmart did a lot of advertising preparing the way. Not only did they have a lot of advertising, they had good deals and low prices. And what I was told is that on the first day that they opened, their grand opening, they had to close early because they were sold out of stock. Walmart sold out of stock? That seems crazy. Now, it makes sense when a brand new store is opening to have grand 
opening banners to be flying for a few weeks. Saying grand opening, special deals, come, learn, experience it all. But after a year, it would seem strange to still have those great banners hanging there saying grand opening, brand new. Well, it's, it's not really brand new anymore. God was launching his church in Acts. The Holy Spirit was moving in a brand new way. And could it be that the signs and wonders performed were to draw attention to this new community, to the new thing that God was doing? But as, as with a new store opening, as a clientele builds up, the advertising changes, doesn't it? Note that the text specifically states that these signs and wonders were performed by the apostles. Um, that's pretty specific and, and narrow, actually. It doesn't say it, they were performed by all the people or by all the believers, but specifically by the apostles. It could be that God, by doing these signs and wonders through the apostles, he was validating their leadership of this new community. That was a way that he could say to the Jewish community surrounding the church at that time, these men are inspired by me. My Holy Spirit lives in them. I'm working through them specifically to lead this new community, the church. You know, this is one of the few times in Scripture, if not the only time, and I want to be careful on this because I haven't fully researched it all, but to the best of my knowledge, this is one of the few times in Scripture where we see signs and wonders associated with great growth of the kingdom of God. All the miracles that Jesus performed did not result in masses of people turning to him and becoming his true followers. In fact, remember what he said after the bread and fish? He fed the, remember he fed the 5,000? The next day, the people came looking for him and they found him. And he said, you look for me because I filled your bellies, basically, is what he said. You want more bread, you want more fish. That's why you come to me. You didn't come to me because you realize that your heart and your soul needs to be saved and transformed. Even in Acts, it's interesting, even in Acts, we're going to see examples of, of people witnessing Paul perform miracles. Or Peter, or or. or Peter and John having the power, and then people come and, and, and they want to buy that power. There's an instance of one man who even, in theory, becomes a believer, and then he goes to Paul and he says, hey, give me the power to lay my hands on people so they can receive the Holy Spirit. You know, give me that power. People completely missing the point. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about a, a beggar named Lazarus and then a rich man. Uh, and you may know the story. It goes back and forth. The, the beggar sat outside the rich man's door and suffered his whole life. But when he died, he went to heaven or to be by Abraham's side, as the parable says. The rich man died and he goes to Hades. He's in torment. And he looks across the divide. He can see the beggar um, in joy and peace and wholeness with Abraham, and he, in the parable that Jesus tells, he says to, he begs um, Abraham to send Lazarus back to tell his brothers the truth. And Abraham says, well, they have the law and the prophets. Now remember, this is Jesus telling this story. Abraham says to the rich man, they have, your brothers have the law and the prophets. And the rich man replies, 
No, no, no. They're not going to listen to those. But if, if a dead person comes back to life, then they'll listen. And Jesus says this, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Sometimes we may become distracted by signs and wonders. Because what did Jesus say would be the primary sign of a community of his people? Their love for each other. Never does Jesus say that all men will know that you are my disciples if you perform signs and wonders. He says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The point of all this is that God did many signs and wonders through the apostles at the dawn of the church age. It's undeniable. It's a fact that we should actually celebrate. I believe he can still do those same things today through his people when he chooses to, but our experience reveals that he does so much less often. And this may be, I believe it is because God is focusing his people and those who come to him on his deepest, most urgent mission, the transformation of the human heart and the salvation of the human soul. I've, I've shared with you before about my friend Robert and how I, I, I didn't enjoy Robert the person very much, but I really liked all of his toys. So I always wanted to go over to Robert's house because he had all the cool toys. And it's possible that signs and wonders can be like those toys. They, they grab our attention and they keep us from relationship with the person. They're a substitute for knowing Christ and being known by him, for being transformed by him and for receiving from him the greatest sign, the greatest wonder, the greatest miracle, which is the salvation and transformation of the human soul and the human heart, passing from death to life, saved from sin and destruction to live forever in the presence of God. That is the greatest sign and the greatest wonder that God has ever or will ever perform. Now let's get back, let's reverse a little bit and come back to the application of this passage for us today in 2020. So as we consider all this information, what we see is a community of people united by their belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he died on a cross but rose from the dead and has offered his death as payment for the sins of anyone who would accept it. The picture that Luke paints of this community is an engaging, joyful one, one that drew outsiders and made them want to become insiders. But brothers and sisters, don't forget the driver. It is the Holy Spirit who is inspiring this community. These new Christians were not doing those things on their own. They did not sit down and have a, a strategy brainstorming session to determine that they should devote themselves to Scripture, to the community of believers, to worship, to prayer, and to multiplication. The Holy Spirit worked that in them. So what is the message for us today? I believe the Holy Spirit is still active in His church. I believe the Holy Spirit is still driving the true church of God. I believe He is still inspiring the church to these things because it is the will and purpose of God, inspiring us to be devoted to the Word of God, inspiring us, calling us, empowering us 
to, being de- to be devoted to the community around us, to the community of believers specifically, inspiring us to be devoted to worship as a priority, to prayer and to multiplication, to witness. Here's the question. Will we allow the Holy Spirit to inspire us in this way? To continue to use the analogy of the car and children a little bit, as the parent is driving and setting out on a long trip, are we there yet? I have to go to the bathroom. Can we get ice cream? Can we stop? You know, the, and that's normal for children. I'm not condemning you children for being bored on long car trips. Um, I was. But the point, I'm, the analogy I'm trying to make is are we reluctant passengers? <laughs> are we resistant passengers? Or are we surrendered? Are, are we desirous that the Holy Spirit would align our desires and our devotion with God's desires and, and devotions? Or are we willing to say to the Holy Spirit, okay, Holy Spirit, I, I surrender to you as the driver of the church and I will go with you where you want to take me and where you want to take us, where you want to take our community. I won't resist you. I open my heart to, to be transformed, to value what you value. Most of us probably need to admit that we're not there yet. Like we try to insert ourselves into this description of that early church and you know, we're, we're, we're like, man, I, I, I'm not sure I'm devoted to all those things. That's the first step, to be honest with the Holy Spirit, to be honest with Christ and say, I'm not and maybe I've been resisting you, Holy Spirit. Maybe I've been quenching your fire a little bit by not allowing you to drive me, to fill me, to inspire me for the things that God would have me be inspired to. We uh, will now, we have the opportunity to do one of those things that the early church was inspired to do, to break bread, to celebrate communion. And communion in itself is an act of surrender. I, I want you to consider this morning as we get ready to, to eat and drink together that in, in willingly eating the bread and drinking the juice, we are saying to the Lord, I, I need you. As my body needs food and drink and sustenance, so my soul needs you. And that we would make this that moment of surrender to the Holy Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, I'm, you are the driver. I am the passenger. I will go where you will take me. I will be who God wants me to be. I will be devoted to those things to which you would devote me.